Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Deplorable Nation. I'm your host, Deplorable Janet, and today I have a brand new, fabulous guest to the show. I love her, and she is so amazing, and she's out there every day helping women, empowering you to take back your health. Um, she speaks a lot of truth. So welcome, Miss Suzanne, a.k.a. Movement Wellness Mama. How are you, my dear? I'm very good. How are you? Thank you for having me. <laughs> I am so excited to have you on the show today because you have so much fire in you and you are making a difference whether you realize it or not. So Thank you, thank you, thank you for being my guest today. So tell the listeners a little bit about you. So I have a very diverse background and this, my current Instagram account, Movement Wellness Mama, is my second one that I started over a year ago because my first one, Scofits, was heavily censored and shadow banned for speaking the truth in 2021. Mm-hmm. Shock, shock and all, join the club here. <laughs> And, you know, I started that account when, you know, Instagram was first out as probably was like in 2009, 2010. And it mm-hmm. just started out as me trying to build my Scofit brand. So Scofit was created in 2009 after leaving the architecture and design in- industry when I got laid off in 2008. And then the housing banking collapse happened. I was having a hard time interviewing for a new job and because many employers were hesitant to hire because of it. And so because I was teaching group fitness classes part-time, my husband said, maybe you should pursue your actual passion, which is health and wellness. Mm -hmm. So I decided to pursue that further. I got certified as a yoga teacher in 2010, as well as a personal trainer in 2009. And then I went on my own at first building a personal training business. And, you know, I was kind of like, not really knowing what I was doing, you know, I was still learning. And it wasn't until after the birth of my first daughter in 2016, that um, I decided to pivot my training business to focus on helping pregnant and postpartum moms, because I had a very traumatic birth with her. Mm -hmm. During pregnancy, I was super sick after getting the Tdap vaccine. And Mm, yeah, shock listeners, (laughs) shock, (laughs) you know, and it was like, um, I was coerced by my OB who who was my doctor for over two decades. We were friends. She was my client. Her and her husband were my clients. We went out to dinner and she was said she would take care of me. You know, when I got pregnant, she would be there for my birth. She was, but I think the red flag I should have listened to was when she wouldn't look at my birth plan. She said, you know, I'm not gonna look at it whatever happens, happens. And in fact, and it did, it did. (laughs) (laughs) And shock it all. Yeah. I mean, she, I had to get induced because of my, my blood pressure and my, you know, that was her reasoning, but my daughter wasn't ready to come out and the induction process was really hard. Mm -hmm. The Pitocin was very, very powerful that I could not get out of bed. It was so intense that I just did not want to get out of bed. My husband's like, come on, you got to walk around. You got to move and I said, I can't, it hurts so much. Right. I didn't get an, yeah, no joke. It's no joke. I did not get an epidural. I refused to get an epidural. And one, finally a midwife that was on staff at the time said, Hey, let's get you on a birthing ball. I said, fine. I finally was able to, you know, 
by just by the bare minimum get on a birthing ball and then I started bleeding I had no idea I'm like is this normal no it's not normal um then all of a sudden my doctor runs in the room and said, oh, there's no fetal activity for the last 20 minutes. And the labor nurse wasn't paying attention. Um, it was, a, I think looking back, it was a case of reverse discrimination because of her race. I'm Asian, I'm also mixed. My husband's Caucasian. So it was, mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, and then, then all of a sudden the entire staff, hospital staff on the floor were in my room trying to get this baby out. And my doctor said, you need to work with me. Otherwise, we're going to go into emergency C-section, you know, threatening me. And of trying course, to get me because in- <laughs> that's always helpful right. when you're in pain and trying to give birth because labor pains are awful. And then compound that with Pitocin on top of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she tried to get me in all sorts of positions. And finally, a male resident got my daughter out with forceps and she was just standing there like directing him. Like, you know, she's my doctor and was not the one that was actually, you know, getting the baby out. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know any of this information at the time because it was my first time. And, you know, I thought as a fitness professional, I knew what I was doing, but I really didn't. And Mm -hmm. I, my first, second clue should have been when I first tried to stand up after birth, I couldn't, I was in so much pain and I was like, oh, this must be normal, but it wasn't because really what happened was the forceps caused a second degree tear. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned 14 months later that I had a partial evader avulsion and pelvic organ prolapse of the bladder. You have got, <laughs> uh, you've had the run of stuff. So l- let me, we're going to like go through this piece by piece, but I want you to tell me, um, like when you very first decided to go for architecture, yeah. what made you decide to pick that and, and how did that career progress? Sure. So as I probably, you know, I talked about in my black sheep reel about how my parents just didn't really respect me. I have only one sibling who was a younger brother who's two, two years younger than me. But, and if you're familiar with Chinese culture, the male is always favored over the female. Mm-hmm. My parents immigrated here to the States and they lived through the Cultural Revolution. So my dad's family lived through World War II. And so males are always preferred. And it was pretty clear growing up that my parents always favored my brother, even though my mom would deny it up and down. You and I have that in common. (laughs) (laughs) I was the least favorite of uh, three of us. So, yeah, there you go. Um, My brother, he could never do no, could never Mm -hmm. do wrong. And my parents would always go to him for advice, even though he had no expertise on the matter. And I did. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was very clear that they didn't really respect me. And so when I was choosing my career, so I basically, it started with, when I was two years or second grade, my parents decided that I was going to take piano lessons because I have long fingers and it's about all about performing because they didn't take music lessons when they were a child, but they mm-hmm. were just, you know, basically living through me. Right. I really didn't appreciate piano lessons. I hated it. I hated practicing, but I, <laughs> I took piano lessons all the way through high school. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually appreciated the music aspect of it, but when you're forced as a child to take lessons when that wasn't mm-hmm. your, really your choice. Right. 
parents chosen. Mm-hmm. So going into high school, I went to a technical high school in Chicago. And we, at the time, we had a choice of choosing a, like a field. So they had math and science, engineering, music. And, and so I made the obvious choice that I did music my, almost my entire life. I chose the music track. And as part of that, my first day, they said, well, you need to rent a violin. I'm going to have to play the violin. That's what you need to do for the music track. And so I rented the violin, came home with it. And my dad's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I've been doing music this entire time. My brother played the violin, but now I'm, I have to do it for, as far as for school. He's like, no, go into something that you can get a, a job in. Like, well, then I had to turn around <laughs> and, and say, wait a minute, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't want to play the violin. Right. <laughs> so the first two years where we had to we were required to take two years of drafting two years of shop and in the third and fourth year you get to choose your your final track so I gravitated towards architectural design not really for the drawing parts but more so because I was always obsessed with lettering I was always obsessed with graphic design and that's really where mm-hmm. my passion was and my parents just kind of took that and pushed me in that direction and looking back I really that wasn't what I really was drawn to, but I went through mm-hmm. architecture school five years to get my bachelor of architecture. I did not do well. I basically, after my first year, I told my parents, I want to switch majors to graphic design. My dad said, no, you chose it. You're going to stick with it. And so it was hard. I, right. I wasn't that Your heart's not in it. My heart's not in it. Yeah. And so now I have to go find a job in this field. <laughs> You know, you're so, like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and I always wondered. I said, I looked looked at my classmates, and they 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 do so well in it, and I was struggling so hard. I'm like, why am I not good at this? And I didn't really understand it until m- many years later. So I went through several jobs. I probably got laid off a couple times throughout my career before that final layoff. And you know, that's when I decided that that's not where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And so it was ironic that when I switched to fitness, I'm helping professionals that are sitting at their desks all day wanting to feel better. And here I am <laughs> trying to help them. <laughs> you know, and I think it's wonderful that we are never too old to follow like the path that we're meant to follow right. and what our passion is. There, I think there are so many people that are like terrified to to switch that up right you know so they just stay in like a job that they hate and and all of that stuff yeah and it's like it's a struggle to get out of bed every day and to get up and to get moving because you're like oh here we go i don't want to go to work today like i can't stand my job if you're actually doing what you love and what you're passionate about there's like joy in that and you don't have that like i don't want to do this Right. And I remember days where I would have the Sunday scaries, I'd be in tears and I was mm-hmm. dating my husband at the time. He's like, what's going on? Like when the alarm would go off, I would hit the snooze button. I don't know how many times mm-hmm. I never really understood it, you know? And, mm-hmm. but what I did find parallel with architecture and fitness is the structure of a building and the anatomy of the body. And I mm-hmm. always use that analogy when I teach my clients and students that if your foundation is not strong, the right. rest of your structure is not going to be sturdy. So, right. so I think you and I had such um, 
like amazingly similar backgrounds because um, we have talked about this a little bit beforehand about how, you know, um, parents play favorites. And then you also said forcing you to do things you don't want to do, like play the piano. Right. And I have talked about that before because it was forced sports on me. And it was like, you're going to do all of these sports, whether you're good at it or not, you're going to do it. You can't quit. We're going to choose them for you. You have to do this. And it took away like basically my childhood. I think they thought they were doing the right thing, but in forcing me to do things that I didn't want to do, it also took away that time with friends and, you know, time to be creative and all of that stuff. But the whole, you know, like we'll ask everybody else in the family's opinion, but yours, right? Because you don't matter. And, you know, we both have that in common and parents choosing your track for you because um, even though I'm a nurse, I was forced to go to business school first. And so I got my business degree first because they made me and I hated it so much. And I'm like, this is not me because I don't like uh, accounting and stuff like that. And I'm not a pencil pusher. I don't want to do that. I can't stand it. And so um, when I went back to school for nursing, they were so mad at me because I chose a different track than what they had planned. Right. I mean, when I got laid off that last time, my dad said, why don't you start your own architecture firm? I said, well, I never passed my licensing exam. I can't do it if Mm I, and he got mad at me for throwing away all that years of education and money that they spend for architecture school because I wanted to pursue something that I liked to, to make a living out of. Mm -hmm. And they never supported it. (laughs) Shocker. Hmm. So during the time when you were doing the architecture thing and you were also teaching part-time, how did you get into the teaching aspect of it to start out with? Yeah, that's interesting too. So I was never, I hated gym class when I was in school. I, I was never good at, you know, I could never swim. I had this really one horrible experience where in my freshman year, they required all freshmen to take swimming this mm-hmm. whole semester. Same. <laughs> and my gym teacher was the girl swim coach, um, ironically. And one day he wanted everybody to like go into the deep end. And I was terrified. Like I, my parents sent me to the Y to take some swimming lessons, but I never did. Well, I always dreaded it because they sent me a later later in um in my in grant during grade school versus like when you're a baby when you don't have those right and i i was afraid to do it and he said nobody's going to leave class until suzanne touches her touches the bottom corner of the deep end of the pool and i was like what so everybody so not only is he shaming me right making everybody late for the next period he's standing over the pool like he's this big big black dude just just like and he was just militant yeah pushing me down I finally did but it was like I was petrified Mm -hmm. so I always hated gym class I always hated when we they had to pick teams for like t-ball or whatever it was dodgeball and things like that so I dreaded it but in architecture school I needed 
I went to the local school gym just to relieve some stress. And I just mm-hmm. got on this Stairmaster and just like, you know, just turning away. And then I, from there, I started doing some weight machines and uh, I think it was just the endorphins or just the feeling of just feeling good mm-hmm. that I got, a, you know, this exercise book. And I kept going and going. And then when I graduated, I said, well, I need to continue this because I, I feel good about it. So I, if you remember Bally's before it like went under. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating myself, but, you know, I went, went to. Same. Bally's. Yes. We're in the we're in the same age category, I'm <laughs> assuming. <laughs> I joined the Bally's and I was still living at home. And after college, I joined the Bally's and I just did my same routine, but I was getting bored. I'm like, I'm done just getting on Stairmaster and waiting for a machine, machine. And I walked into a step class. I'm like, this is probably not the right first group fitness class, but I'll try it. And I, I felt so stupid because I'm like, everybody's going this way. And I was like, in the, you know. <laughs> and I'm going the opposite <laughs> direction. <laughs> but eventually I kept going, went every single day and I finally got it. And I was, I loved it so much. And then I started graduate gravitating towards like their weight classes and like their version, there was basically this, like Taibo, you know, at the time, like their mm-hmm. version. Of- oh, yeah. yeah. It, we're definitely <laughs> dating ourselves. <laughs> People are like, what the hell is Taibo? <laughs> we all love Billy Blanks. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and when Bally started um, getting bought out, um, our local gym was Crunch. Crunch also went out of business, Crunch Fitness in our in Chicago. But I joined joined there because it was like more of a an upgrade for me and the group fitness classes were way better mm-hmm. and I love this one cardio kickboxing class and I went there like religiously and the teacher we packed the room so tightly that there's barely enough space to move there's like over 100 people in the room <laughs> that would be fun <laughs> cardio kickboxing right exactly <laughs> yeah but I really you know like it was I think it was the combination of the endorphins of exercise and like the camaraderie with other people that are enjoying mm-hmm. the same thing. Right. But coming from a music background, I really liked music and choreography. Right. Like the two. And so I, I was also starting to take um, swing dance lessons and ballroom dance lessons. So I really gravitated toward that. So I loved like creating my own choreography for those classes. And eventually mm-hmm. I, um, would team teach was one of the instructors and then I would teach part of their class and then I decided to get my certification and then from there I started picking up some classes and I started building a following where people would follow me to my classes it was just nice to be able to be recognized for your talents when you're mm-hmm. in your entire life nobody was you know nobody saw you nobody saw you so mm-hmm. that was my time to really shine and my parents never understood it and it was my escape, really, because I was still living at home after college. Mm-hmm. And there were days when I just wanted to go. And my parents were like, you're not going. Your you're, your calves are getting too big. You look like you have legs of a man. I'm like, come on. <laughs> you're like, what do you look like? Never mind. Let's <laughs> not go there. <laughs> but it was, you know, all the stereotypical, you know, like Asian cultures. Like when I would meet with, when I became a personal trainer and I would meet with new members who wanted to to lose weight but a lot of them were asian because i worked at a facility where it was tied to an apartment complex where a lot of international students were um, right living and they're all asian and they all like can you like get rid of this and can you make my legs like not so 
thick. And I'm like, those are your muscles. Those are your calf muscles. Right. Like, they're very obsessed with being just like thin and well, toothpick. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> <laughs> but that's where, you know, well, it went from architecture to fitness. So did you, did you ask them if you could teach classes with them or how did that come about where you started doing that? I started a pro, um, because I, be, I was a pretty much a regular that the teachers knew me. Um, and I would always be in the front. I would always was in the front row, like really leading. And so I kept being excited. Yeah. But it was, it was funny though. The, the popular teachers that were teaching this really didn't give me the opportunities to teach. Like they were favoring another student. Mm -hmm. which, and I don't know it's because I was Asian. I have no idea. And so when they finally left and moved away, one of the new group, um, group fitness instructor coordinators, she saw actually one of the popular teachers left and they needed to fill, a t fill her spot. So I was basically taking over some, filling some very big shoes. Mm -hmm. And so it's from there that I built, rebuilt the class with my own following. And then you're like, look at me go. Yeah. See, you didn't think I was good enough and I'm right. better. Yeah. <laughs> so it came about at a good thing that you actually got laid off from your architecture job. Yeah. I'm sure at the time you didn't see it that way. I'm sure you were like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And this is my life path. And, you know, I can't get a job in this. Why am I not getting hired? It's because you were getting the message the whole time that that's not what you should be doing. Right. Yeah. So I'm so glad that that, that kicked off and, and uh, put you where you were supposed to be. So now let's go to the birth story. Okay. Because um, there are a lot of females out there that I know darn good and well are going to um, identify with this. Um, there are a lot of different pelvic floor injuries that you can receive during uh, childbirth. Um, and, and for people that don't know, I'm going to explain this in the most basic terms <laughs> possible. Pelvic floor injuries means that like your pelvic muscles basically make up a hammock that holds your goodies where they're supposed to go. And during childbirth, a lot of times what happens, whether it be through the forceps or a C-section or massive tear injuries or all host of number of things, um, when those pelvic muscles are disturbed, it can cause your organs to move and to not be where they lurk where they're supposed to be. And so they can actually shift paths and come out causing a prolapse. Right. So <clears throat> you can have a lot, a whole host of different uh, pelvic floor injuries or prolapse or, you know, all, all kinds of things from all the organs that are in that particular section, um, which include, your bladder, your uterus, of course, your small bowel, and your vajayjay and your rectum. So let us talk about you and um, the whole birthing process for you. So you said you had a birthing plan 
um, that was ignored by your doctor. That's yes. a red flag uh, for people have, that haven't had kids yet. That's a red flag run. Um, but what did your plan include? What did you want to see during birth? You know, at the t with my first birth, and here's the thing, you know, for people that are not moms yet, the classes that you take at the hospital mm -hmm. are they useless. don't prepare you. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> prepare you for shit. I'm yeah, just gonna say that very mildly. Yes. I mean, I took the hospital uh, breastfeeding class. I took the hospital birthing class. You know, the first aid and all that. Mm -hmm. Breastfeeding. That's another. I'm gonna dive. That's into a whole nother story. Whole yep. nother story. <laughs> um, so, I basically took like a generic. Um, birth plan from like I had my profile set up with like um, what was it like baby center or from the not one of those like um, websites that where you can track your like milestones of the baby growing and things like that they had right. like, a generic one that you can modify I modified it I wanted to have like you know at least be able to move around during labor right. to be able to have um, a say in how I wanted to birth in terms of like positioning. Cause I, at least I knew about that. Right. I also, you know, wanted to be able to like, not be hooked up to a, like continuous monitoring. Well, that kind of went out the window because in my, during, I was active during that first pregnancy because I was still working at the, a gym, mm -hmm. training clients and also training myself, but it wasn't until the last month of my pregnancy when we do those non-stress tests because of my age, because I was pregnant with my uh, first daughter, I was 42. Mm -hmm. So they considered it like, you know, um, you and I are definitely in the same age group <laughs> then because I'm definitely older than 42. I'm over 50. So there you go. Mm -hmm. um, so for whatever reason, during that last month of pregnancy, my blood pressure started going up every time I went to that non-stress test appointment, which is supposed to be mm -hmm. non-stress, but it's very stressful for me because like in the, my mind, like something's wrong with baby or, you know, like you're sitting there right. just waiting for the monitor to do its thing. Right. And that's when my blood pressure started going, rising at that time. Mm -hmm. um, which let me interject really quick, people. Yeah. Uh, that can also be white coat syndrome because you are hooked up to shit that you're not normally hooked up to. So right. your blood pressure normally rises. And then here comes the diagnosis that you have really high blood pressure and you need to take medication, even though you're just terrified to be in a medical facility. Right. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. So anytime it would be high, they would then send me to triage to then mm -hmm. be monitored mm -hmm. and then I would get the okay. Then I had to follow up with the doctor that during that week. And it's like mm -hmm. money, money. <laughs> it's all about making money. Right. Mm -hmm. So come week 39, typical non-stress test appointments, my blood pressure was high. They sent me to triage. And then the, I was being, I was prepared that I would have to follow up with my doctor again. But they said, no, you're staying put here because you are going to get induced. I'm like, my hospital bag's not packed. I thought mm -hmm. I had another week. So I called my husband who he owns his own business. So like, luckily he was able to just, you know, leave. And I said, please go home and pack the hospital bag and meet me at the hospital because we're having a baby today. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you weren't prepared either, honey, yeah. but it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Because the doctor said so. So I, they, I went upstairs 
or the, the labor labor floor. They had to, I don't know if you're, if anybody is not familiar with this, they had to insert a balloon first for the balloon to open mm-hmm. before they can, you know. Yeah, they have to dilate you. Dilate me. Manually dilate My, you yes. because they didn't allow your body to do its job. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they... Um, I forgot the order of it. I think my doctor then broke my water mm-hmm. without letting it break on its own. Uh-huh. And she gave the first dose of Pitocin and then increased it. And it just from there, like, I'm like, what, what is going on? Because I'm in so much pain. The dose, yeah. I mean, my, uh, I don't think the baby was like liking any of it. Right. And let me, let me tell people that don't know, um, Pitocin is used to induce labor. Um, it is a synthesized hormone that they give you, which is supposed to make you, uh, dilate, contract and all of that stuff faster to, uh, hurry along your labor basically. So if you think about how the body does things in its own natural time, right. And you're giving something that is man-made to rush that along, let us just think, uh, put on your creative thinking caps and wonder what kind of problems could possibly arise yeah. from hurrying the body through a process that is not supposed to be rushed. Right. So, anyway, go ahead. Um, so, yeah. And I, going back to what I was talking about earlier, I, a midwife working the shift finally got me out of the bed that I refused to get out of because I was in so much pain. I, mm-hmm. She got me on a birthing ball and I was still in pain, but I was doing my best. And then I started bleeding. My husband's like, is this normal? And I said, I don't think so. And so that's when that whole mm-hmm. scenario happened. And it turns out that my placenta detached early. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing some research about this because I also, I'm going to touch briefly into my second birth, but um, I really think that my, the, hor- the hormones of the placenta mm-hmm. do not agree with my body. And that's creating some of the, what was happening with the blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And I always happen in that last stage of pregnancy when everything mm-hmm. just intensifies. Right. So fast forward, um, Baby's out because uh, I only, only cared about the baby getting out safely and avoiding a C-section by all means. Mm-hmm. Yes, and definitely. <laughs> they, they said, then the doctors come over with this concerned look on their face. I'm like, what's wrong? We found this surprise condition on your daughter's right clavicle. What? Well, earlier in the, or in the third trimester, um, they had, I had to do a level two ultrasound because my daughter had a right dilated kidney so they're monitoring that they're worried about that but they didn't pick this up during that ultrasound <laughs> I mean I don't know mm-hmm. I know you may have more answers to that than <laughs> I, do. I don't know mm-hmm. so and I said what is it well they didn't know what it was so they had to immediately I didn't get initial chest skin to skin or any of that initial latch they immediately took her away after they weighed her and they peed she peed on them as they were trying to weigh her <laughs> she's like good for her <laughs> check <laughs> these doctors are jerks yeah, check yeah. so they immediately took her to NICU and I didn't get to see her 
um, initially for the first few hours. And because I was in so much pain, they had to wheel, get me in a wheelchair to go downstairs mm-hmm. to see her. And they were trying to figure out what, she, what was the condition. And nobody can give us answers. And it wasn't until one of the nurses finally like, had to go get the records um, for us because the, the, the pediatric residents and the lead pediatrician would not give us any answers. Would not give her birth records. Like we need to like find a specialist. Like who's a specialist? You know. Mm-hmm. And they finally, they finally told us it was a lymphatic, a venous lymphatic malformation. So it was like five macro cysts sitting on her right clavicle, which made it very painful for her to turn her head to the right. So she's when she's sleeping, she couldn't roll or look. You know. They, mm-hmm. we had to see an. Um, Keep in mind that she had a a, a DTAP yep. injury. People, yeah. okay, yeah. All right, um, go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> you're you're doing the the connecting the dots for me. You mm-hmm. know that I already was trying to, and I didn't really connect these dots until much later because I think I went into a state of depression. Mm-hmm. Because oh, sure, we were in the NICU. She, I couldn't get her to latch because when when a baby. Be, is brought to Earthside, they want to be with their mother. And when mm-hmm. they're taken away into a room with loud noises, bright lights, it's Correct. Like, it, it shapes their nervous system for the first yes. time. So mm-hmm. she's like in a state of like, you know, fight or Constant fight. excitation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, during the time in the hospital, I'm going to, to the breastfeeding aspects, she couldn't latch. And the lactation consultant couldn't help me. She just told me to just hand me a pump and had, had me start pumping. I'm like, well, my milk hasn't come in really. And mm-hmm. you're asking me to pump. And so they ended up, my baby was crying. She wouldn't latch, couldn't get milk out. So then they gave her a formula. Of course. Right. <clears throat> and that's not concerning in the least bit. No. no. Mm-mm. And I thought that was like what I need to do. And so we were giving her formula for a little bit, but I was still determined to nurse her. I'm like, and, but I would get up in the middle of the night cause she's hungry and she was screaming because she couldn't last. She's hungry. So then I just like, I gave up and my husband finally had to take her and give her formula, but that's not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so Fast forward, her pediatrician at one appointment noticed like a flat part of her head. I'm like, well, duh, because she has to line her back because she can't turn her head to the right. So she said, I need need you to send her to physical therapy, right? So that's one aspect of it. Um, I'm going to dive into that in a little bit. But Mm -hmm. um, she also then recommended us to have a lactation consultant come to our house to maybe help with the breastfeeding. So this woman was really great. She came in the house with a scale and was like weighing to make sure she's like, you know, um, getting the milk. She found the right position. In their quote percentile ranges for normal child growth. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I got her just, then we should start latching and like, it was fine. Mm -hmm. But of course she preferred, um, because I was going back to work part-time. And so I was trying to get used to, so I was pumping a lot and then my, my husband's trying to help out to feed her breast milk in a bottle. So she was more, her preference is always bottled, even though she's still nurse. So at 14 months, she decided she didn't want to nurse anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I can say, think of why that was because of the initial experience. Right. Now, how long was she in the NICU? Um, about 24 hours. 
So she didn't spend a lot of time in yeah, there. Thank God. Boy, yeah. Yeah. But that's, you were, you hit the nail on your head when you were talking about, you know, the, the noises and all of that stuff because it overstimulates their nervous system. Right. And so that's why I said constant state of excitation because they're constantly used to, you know, bright lights, loud noises, um, machine, you know, uh, sounds and all of that stuff. And so it does, it changes their neurological makeup right. and, and makes their neurons fire on that, on that really, you know, high level instead of the calm, nurturing mom level. And you so. bring up another good point because my, my daughter's, um, when she was a baby, she was terrified of loud noises. So she didn't like mm -hmm. um, hand dryers or um, automatic toilets mm -hmm. <laughs> that flush. So we'd always put right. like a, like a post-it note or something on the sensor. So it wouldn't, you know, when she's going through potty training, we, she didn't want to go use the potty in public restroom because it's a loud noise. Right. So that was a big issue, but even now she's seven years old now, and now she still has like sensory issues. Mm -hmm. like, right. She's and that's, and that's the thing is because they, it, it like shapes, um, how the way that your neurons and your brain fire. And so, um, that lends itself to, toward muscle memory, right? you know? And so when, um, even as you age, you don't know why you're afraid of these things or you don't know why like loud noises startle you and, and shock you. It's because of what happens at, at the birth process. That very first instance, when you come out, what happens, they yeah. automatically rushed her away from you. You didn't get a bond with her. You didn't, she didn't get that human, you know, connection touch. She's automatically whisked off and, yeah. and yeah. put, you know, in the, um, well, I can't, I'm having a total brain fart. What do you call it? But when they, as soon as the baby's born and, you know, they, they take them away to do their APGAR score and stuff like that. And right. so it's like this hustle and bustle because there's all of these people around that are checking all of these systems on the baby. And so that baby, their very first memories are what shaped them for, right. for years and I try to tell oh. this to my husband who's, she doesn't understand why she has to have these, why she still has these outbursts and, you know, she takes mm -hmm. karate. So she uses her karate a lot sometimes when she right. just regulated, he still doesn't understand. I'm like, you have to bring it back to that, that first day when she came to her right. side. And also she, the doctor said that she may not walk. She may need some sort of procedure. They like with the, you know, we were scared for that first year of her life. She went to physical therapy and it was, it was physical therapy that, um, dissolve the mass because you know if anybody knows about the lymphatic system mm -hmm. movement moves lymph and if everything right. is one of the draining points of that right clavicle right then it was helping drain it and it did come back it was already finally starting to come down and with physical therapy and then we got coerced and taking one dose of the flu shot and when we got that first dose the mass blew back up so we knew it had something to do with the the immune system right so we said no more flu shots we're not doing that again and the pediatrician looked at us like what's wrong i'm like we're not doing it that's the reason why it blew back up right 100 percent. and even before we realized that um physical therapy was the answer there was when the mass was still um 
still there, they they still insisted on her getting not one, but two sedated MRIs to mm-hmm. find out what was going on and to mm-hmm. put a child under the age of one. in a, Under anesthetic. Yes. <laughs> and an MRI. <laughs> right. Whoa, double whammy. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of that, I think, has, has really shaped what's going on with my daughter right now. Right. Um, but we, I... We were so grateful that by by a chance of just the doctor saying she had a flathead that actually led her to her resolving the mass that was the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. And because of the mass, she was very uncomfortable. She spent very little time in crawling mm-hmm. and went straight to walking. And she was already like standing on, with very little support at four months. Mm-hmm. months. She took her first few steps at like maybe six or seven months and she started walking at nine and a half months. That's good though. So she basically, yeah. Yeah. And the reason why um, like crawling would be an issue uh, just to put this in perspective for maybe people that aren't thinking about this um, is you have to hold your head up to crawl. And if you have that mass to where you can't even turn your neck, you know, yeah. and it's, it's, you know, in, in that area, imagine the strain that that puts on your neck as you're trying to hold your head up while you're crawling. Right. So I learned, for I being learned smart lot, enough yeah. to know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I learned a lot about um, kids and milestones when mm-hmm. she went through physical therapy and it, it almost is like it was a blessing in disguise simply right. because if I didn't go through that or learn about that my child would be in a bouncer all the time she would be in a car seat all the time but we spent mm-hmm. a lot of time on on her tummy right learning about letting her roll onto her back and you know tummy to back back to tummy mm-hmm. whereas other parents they just want to put her in a car seat or put her in you know in a bumbo chair which right those a lot of those things are just not meant you know having a child try to sit in a bumbo chair when they're not, they're not even ready to sit on their own mm-hmm. yeah and and i always say this um it's a good thing that this happened because look at the education that it brought to you yeah and had that not happened you would not have known any of that stuff right <coughs> pardon me and you wouldn't have been able to uh, help deal with the things that she needed to go through or um, basically that you, the education that you guys gained on your own to help her progress right. and to continue to grow and, and not have like muscle atrophy and, you know, all of that yeah. stuff. You learned what you needed to do to take care of that. And a lot That's, of parents yeah. don't. And it's interesting because the ENT that was working with our daughter had another patient with the same exact condition. And this is the first, we were the first case of this type of condition that he really didn't have any idea. Mm -hmm. And what he ended up doing is ended up sending that patient to our physical therapist because we were so successful, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, with this type of condition. Mm-hmm. And I basically took this experience of working with the physical therapist to then not only helping um, moms, but helping moms and their babies. So you're, I, mm-hmm. I actually helped, gave me the idea to create some mommy and me classes where 
right. teaching moms how to get movement in, but then helping their babies work, work on their milestones. So doing mm -hmm. lots of tummy time, teaching them how to hold their ch baby in different positions that, that encourage tummy time. And I said, tummy mm -hmm. time doesn't have to be them just putting them on their tummies. It could be right. different like football holds or things like that. And they didn't realize that because a, a baby gets tired easily in tummy time, they get frustrated. So you, you support mm -hmm. them in other ways, putting them on your lap, you know, on right. your chest. And then while you're doing that, you're doing, you're killing two birds with one stone by helping them, but then you're doing exercises with the baby. So it's get, it was te me teaching them how to get more time and getting their exercise, but then also being with their baby and helping their babies in their milestones. So it's like a threefold class that you should teach. And I just want to say, I think it's fantastic what you're doing with that, because um, if that if that incidence would have happened to anybody else, would they have started those classes to help other people and Probably. to help moms, to help babies, all of that stuff? So you were chosen for a reason to do this. And what you're doing is so important. And one of the things you said earlier was, you know, taking the classes at the hospital, which really, really do not prepare a mother for birth in any way, shape or form. Right. Um, and like you said, you know, you were talking before about your birth plan and how you wanted to move around and stuff like that. <clears throat> and a lot of people will find when you when you go to give birth, most of the hospitals don't want you to move. Right. When they check you in, you stay in bed. You don't change position. You don't get to pick the position that your birth is in. Uh, a lot of facilities don't have birthing balls. They don't have a lot of the stuff right. that they should have to keep moms comfortable. And one of the things that moms go through a lot which is never addressed is uh, back labor. Oh yeah. Which goes to my next point. <laughs> <laughs> and, and back labor is a horrendous thing where all of your labor pains are felt in your back. Um, that is never addressed in a birthing class. If it is, it's a very rare situation, right. but you know, things that you can do to ease that, like a tennis ball, you know, rolled up and down, you know, in the back with the palm and, and, you know, different things like that, that will help to relieve that. But these are things that supposedly these classes were set up by a female. Um, and I, she must have had the easiest birth on the face of the right. planet. Okay. Just learn how to breathe. Right. Okay. You're done. Push. <laughs> Well, here's the thing is, like I didn't spend, have a birth like that. Yeah. My birth was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> you spend, you know, during pregnancy, they say, don't lie on your back, don't sleep on your back, but then they want you to birth on your back. I mean, right. The... It makes no sense. Well, and, and this is disturbing and disgusting to some people, but think about, um, even like in the last, you know, decade or so, people that have trouble pooping, right? Right. Um, and they have discovered that if you sit in a certain position, use a squatty potty, whatever, right. where yes. you put your knees up, um, 
you're able to evacuate easier because it lets it all come out instead of making that cramp in the intestines. Right. Uh, Same thing with birth. Yeah. But they don't consider that. And it's like, nope, you have to lay on your back, um, which if any of if any of you have ever had surgery uh, of any kind and you had to lay on your back for an extended period of time after surgery and they're like, well, you can't leave the hospital until you poop. I would like you to tell me how you poop laying down okay. and how that works out for you. It's the same thing with giving birth because it's the same pelvic floor muscles that are necessary to, to move that baby and to move the labor along. So I, I don't get it. And I mean, why don't they give you the vice before you leave the hospital um, mm-hmm. to, to prepare for your first poop to sit on a squatty potty? Mm-hmm. But yet they say, oh, you know, don't lift more than 10 pounds, mm-hmm. but your baby plus car seat or stroller, that's. That's more than 10 pounds. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And, and the, you know, when we were talking earlier about the, the tear that you got, I got a massive tear too. And then uh, it tore in the wrong spot. And so then they had to cut, um, which they ended up getting some nerves and stuff. Oh boy. Um, So, those things happen very, very frequently. And then they don't know even what to tell you as far as taking care of that when you get home. Right. You know, and the and the things to expect and the things that you need to do. Oh, here, just slather this, slather this steroid cream on there. That'll help. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's disturbing. The uh, people that specialize in OB, I did OB for a long time. Um, It's not my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) OB was not my favorite, but um, the amount of time that I spent in OB on rotations and stuff, and I would just observe and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why are, why are we doing things this way? And it's kind of like, well, we've always done it this way. So that's that's your answer status quo instead of thinking outside the box like what can you do to make your patients more comfortable what can you do to like share knowledge with your patients like uh aren't you supposed to teach your nurses that uh massage helps uh relax your patients so that the birth is not so traumatic but those are things small things that they forget so and, you know, if they were to tell a C-section mama how to, about scar release mm-hmm. on, their, you know, on their scar. Right. And pelvic floor physical therapy. I mean, my postpartum visit with my first birth was not even with my doctor. It was with the nurse practitioner. So I didn't even really get to see my doctor because it's okay, you're done with birth. It's like you have all these visits mm-hmm. during birth or during pregnancy. And then after it's like, oh. I don't care. Get out of my face. Yeah. (laughs) And so at that, at that postpartum visit, I was like, you know, she was like asking the the typical questions. Like, are you, do you you have these signs of depression or these feelings of like wanting to kill your baby or are you, what are you doing for birth control? Like, I'm like, I just want a script for public floor physical therapy. She's like, well, do you have any symptoms? And I had to give her a reason to get it. It It wasn't even standard. I said, well, I'm having a little leaking. She's like, okay, 
but then, you know, like that should be a, <clears throat> I feel like that should be a common thing. Yeah. That's, it. Um, that's offered, offered after every birth because there is so much trauma that happens during birth. Um, like I said, whether it's, you know, rush too fast. And so your, your, you know, vaginal wall tears or your muscles tear, or you have a prolapse or, or you have, you know, any host, any number of things. And uh, the leakage afterwards is very common. Uh, don't sneeze or laugh too hard or whatever. And it's like, they don't care about any of that. No. And it should be commonplace right. to put those things into motion and be like, okay, well, you just pushed a gigantic bowling ball out a little tiny area. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's going to be trauma. So we should make that part of a normal plan. Right. And, you know, obviously none of that happened. Mm -hmm. So I did see the first um, physical therapist I did see was recommended by my coach, but she said he was really, he was really good in pelvic floor. And in the end he wasn't. And then he just tried to pitch me to buy his friends like, um, program or whatever. And so I, I spent a lot of money and a lot of time and ended up finding an, an actual women's health pelvic floor physical therapist. I had to start all over. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, I was able to heal, but I didn't find out about the prolapse until 14 months postpartum. Mm -hmm. And when you go for a checkup and they're like, Oh, uh, you have a, you have a rectocele or a cystocele or right. yeah. <laughs> any, any number of things. And they're like, Oh, by the way, did you know this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was that it was, I asked my OB at, at my annual checkup at 14 months to check to see her. And she's like, Oh yeah, you, you, was, uh, I think it's a grade two cystocele. And so if you were planning to have another pregnancy, it's probably most likely to be a C-section. I'm like, no, like, don't assume. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We'll just automatically uh, put you in that category. Let's just cut you open because that would be so much more fun. Right. And I, I took that mm -hmm. as another red flag from her. And when mm -hmm. I was trying to get pregnant around that time, and my husband and I went to Mexico for vacation. And when we came back, she's, I was letting her know I was trying to try again. She's like, oh, I don't want to help you until you, I don't want you trying to get pregnant for another six months because you were in Mexico and this is when Zika was happening. I'm like, come on, really? Like Zika, like. <laughs> Fairborn. <laughs> You're going to die from Zika virus. There's going to be a mosquito bite you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was my sign to leave my OB of, you know, over two decades. Mm -hmm. And I went to interview a midwife that was highly recommended and, that summer. And she said, she heard all my concerns and she's like, you know, I really want to be, I think I'm, it's my calling to be your midwife to deliver the baby whenever, once, whenever you get pregnant. And so I, something about her just like really sat very well. And so when I did end up getting pregnant, it was a much different pregnancy. She actually had a specific appointment to look at my birth plan. Mm -hmm. um, she, I did get induced, but you know, it was a completely different experience because it was an, again, during a non-stress test appointment where the baby's heart rate dropped suddenly. And they said, maybe it's a sign that the baby's ready to come out. And I kind of knew that she was ready because as I was walking, I could feel my pelvic floor 
feel really heavy, like it was. Pouring. Oh yeah, that that feeling when you're yeah. dumping a whole semi load full <laughs> of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I um. I trusted my body. I knew, and right. so, but the we did get pitocin. My blood pressure was high. I couldn't use the birthing suite with the water in the tub, and so I was fine with that. But I. For some reason, it was even though there was those issues still at hand, I felt more comfortable because my mm-hmm. my husband was in the lobby, um, talking to, because um, my our older daughter was there, and my parents came to to take or watch my daughter, and they were going to take her to home with them while I was in the hospital, but he watched the midwife walk into the lobby with her bag, like meaning business, like she was there to be with me from from the minute she walked into the building and she was there mm-hmm. the entire time until I waiting for my doula. I finally got a doula this time I was willing to spend the money knowing that if anything were to happen, of course, nothing happened this time, mm-hmm. but right. you know, it happened so fast that I was almost mm-hmm. ready to give birth by the time my doula showed up. It was, and I naturally breathed the baby down learning because I went through pelvic core physical therapy. Like I did it during my second pregnancy Mm-hmm. And worked with a pelvic floor physical therapist in my second pregnancy and was teaching, learning how to teach me how to breathe during birth. Right. That was what I consider a true birthing class. Right. Learning from a pelvic floor physical therapist. Right. And that's the the thing about the breathing is um, that you have to do breathing techniques that actually are used to relax your muscles. Right. What you learn in the birthing classes in it's the hospital. The, contract are, are very are very far from that because you're kind of holding your breath yeah and so um like this is one of my uh things that i always told ladies anytime they would come in whether it was for ob stuff or uh just a female exam or whatever okay you're going to focus on your breathing the entire time. You're going to breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, you know, slow, deep, controlled breaths. Because when you do that and you're concentrating on that, you can't clamp your muscles down. Because when you clamp down on a speculum that opens up, that feels like the jaws of life or, you know, opening to uh, swallow you whole. um, When you, when you focus on your breathing, you can't, make that contractive movement right so it's not so uncomfortable i was able to breathe the baby all the way down to mm-hmm. the, to the point where she was ready to come out i could feel the pressure like i was ready to poop and like mm-hmm. i'm like i know that's the what what it's supposed to feel like a hundred percent yep and then my midwife was there to basically she's there to catch her and my husband was down there and he wasn't there before with the first birth he was down there assisting he, he said he got splashed with a lot of fluid like that's how you know <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know you were in the front row of the Gallagher concert honey <laughs> I got that initial skin to skin contact I got my first latch mm-hmm. um, and my daughter is four now and she is still nursing and I really think it's because of that initial positive experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was going to say um, the, a lot of 
attention has been given over the last couple years of using midwives and doulas and things like that and having home births. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason why that is so popular is because you are out of that um, high stress, high anxiety. You're in your own house. You can control the lighting, the mood, you know, the whole nine yards. Uh, you can put on whatever music you want. You don't have tons of people scurrying around right. and alarms beeping and, you know, all of that stuff. And I think it's a great idea to have that where, or even having birthing centers right. um, where it's, it's almost like a massage parlor if you've ever been to a massage therapist or whatever where you go in and it has you know the mood music and all of that stuff it's because it's so much more relaxing and the mom's relaxed and hence the baby's relaxed yeah and you don't have that you know open stressful environment that excites not only you but your child right so i think it's great that that's that's a thing now and my midwife, her practice was partnered up with this birthing medical center that I was giving birth at. Mm-hmm. And so they had, they made sure there was peanut balls at the center. And so I requested a peanut ball because I had to be in the bed. So I did sideline for mm-hmm. a little bit and I was able to, to breathe the baby down that way in sideline position. Mm-hmm. I spent a little time on my back, but it was very minimal and even people that need to birth on the back for whatever reason, you know, they're, they don't give, they're not given the information that, you know, to maybe elevate the sacrum a little bit. So they have a little bit of support right. so they're not directly on their sacrum. So it opens up right. the pelvic outlets, right? you know, to give the baby a little bit more ease to come out. And mm-hmm. those little like nuances that need to be addressed. And I don't think that's ever. hundred percent. And you know what I think though? I think it's through uh, people like you that are going to make a change in the way that facilities do things. Yeah. Because uh, when you have, you know, staff that have been like, you know, in uh, OB, postpartum, whatever, for, you know, decades, they're not going to change. They're not going to suddenly wake up one morning and go, oh, well, maybe we should like do this because that would help the mom. Or that would help the baby come out better. They're not going to see things like that because they're too close to it. So I think it's going to be people like you that make a change that's very necessary for women's health. Absolutely. Um, I wanted what I want to say also with this second birth with breastfeeding, it was a really good experience. Mm -hmm. But in the hospital, her she had elevated Billy Billy Rubin levels, Mm -hmm. and if anybody's knows about what Billy Rubin is like if you, you could probably explain it better than me but they wanted to put her in a light box to you know right get the levels back down and instead of the pediatricians collaborating with the um, lactation consultant on this if they if the lactation consultant wasn't knowledgeable enough to talk to us and pull us aside and say hey you're gonna take this hand pump and you're going to pump as much milk out, put in a syringe and dad, you're going to wake the baby up and feed her with syringe of breast milk every hour on until she has this big, nasty first poop. That's going to poop out mm-hmm. a fall poop 
and it's going to drop her her billy rubin levels mm-hmm. and it did yeah and <laughs> obviously that that lactation consultant has been uh educating herself for a very long time because i will guarantee you that is not something that she learned in school a hundred percent oh yeah and that first poop is wow yes yeah just wow we're like you were not kidding when you said (laughs) you were like you put that as an understatement because (laughs) holy moly i wasn't expecting that um so tell them too i want you to talk a little bit before i let you go about um breaking the cycle of generational trauma because that kind of ties in to uh, your traumatic birth and your, you know, your children and all of that stuff right. and, and getting them away from that. So yeah. Tell so, them a little bit about that. I, um, you know, my parents, especially my father was never in full approval of my marriage or dating, you know, even after the first month of, me dating he's like you need to stop dating that white contractor Mm -hmm. i'm like well he's an architect he works for a general contractor yes he's white but you know it's it's a cultural thing it's a yeah cultural thing because my boyfriend in in college cheated on me so he he had this like you know preconception of like that all white white boys that i dated would be the same right and if i listened to my dad I would not be in the place that I am right now. Mm-hmm. I chose not to. And my, so when I s- refused to stop dating him, my dad stopped talking to me for six months. I was still living at home and you know how awkward that is. Oh so yeah. My husband said at boyfriend at the time, he said, you need to get out of there. Like this is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Let's go find you an apartment or if you don't want to rent, we'll find a condo to buy it. Let's get you out of there. So he found me a place. I basically, I didn't tell my parents I was looking and I said, I'm moving out. I bought a condo. This is my moving out date. And they're like, what? So my dad started talking to me again and they invited him over on July 4th, Independence Day to like (laughs) (laughs) celebrate your freedom. Yes. yes. (laughs) Whole new kind of freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and for a while, like he, my dad, you know, was accepting of him and then we went it goes through these cycles so when I got engaged you know they're mad because I chose not to have a wedding in Chicago or near home we chose to go to Kohler Wisconsin and go to the American Club at the Kohler Resort because we wanted more of a mini destination wedding but my dad thought we're having having it on a farm like some hillbilly like type of what I'm like no that's it's a very elegant place so he's very judgmental through that whole process Mm-hmm. And my husband or fiance at the time didn't want them involved in it. So he saved all his money. So my parents wouldn't have to pay for it. He paid for the entire wedding on his own. So I would have a say in the wedding. Mm-hmm. And my parents like, well, why aren't our names on the wedding invitation? Well, we didn't, we didn't pay for it. So my dad hands me a check for $1,000. Like, here, let's get our name. Like, here's a $1,000 check for your wedding dress. I'm like, I don't want it. He just wanted his name. Uh, I was just going to say name recognition. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and you said something that is so important because in that whole scenario, you know, you're you're trying to plan your future and you're envisioning your wedding the way that you see it and right. that you want it. 
and they're so irritated because they can't control what you're doing. Right. And that's the reason my husband, my husband knew this. Mm-hmm. He's very like, he could see through all that. And he said, you, I want you to be able to have the wedding that you always dreamed of having. I incorporate some of the cultural aspects of it in our wedding. We actually did a, there's a Chinese character for like double happiness that they use on all these Chinese wedding invitations. But I actually did a modern version of it. I had the symbol, the character die cut into the front of the wedding invitation. So it was very like elegant and I had like thought it out very, you know, carefully. And everything was Mm -hmm. like, you know, but my parents didn't recognize that until our family and friends saw how like elegant the wedding was. They wouldn't give me the credit for it until they got the approval from their family, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so after the marriage and then, you know, with, and even with the first birth, here's another thing. My father-in-law was dying of cancer when I was pregnant with my first daughter. And at my brother's wedding, both my parents each separately went up to my dying father-in-law and saying, oh, it's too bad you're not having a boy. And my dying father-in-law said, what do you care? As long as it's a healthy baby, who cares if it's a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. And when she was born with this condition, every single time we were going to take a picture, my mom would then try to pull her, her shirt to cover the mask because she was embarrassed by it. That's so, that's so. It's all about like perception or like, you know, selfishness, pure selfishness. Like how, how conceited and egotistical do you have to be, you know, to, to make it all about you? Every scenario is about you. Well, I'm mad at you because you're not doing the wedding that I think you should have. I, uh, you're not doing the pictures that I think are important. You know, like, why are you not considering my feelings? Right. And like all things. Yeah. And our families are definitely, very very similar in that aspect and that's why you know people know i do not have a problem with cutting anyone out of my life that is toxic yeah like i don't at all yeah and so with a second pregnancy or a second birth my i told you that my parents were in the lobby with our older daughter Mm -hmm. after my younger daughter was born my husband went downstairs to give them the good news Keep in mind that my younger daughter is sitting there with them, but she was only three at the time. Says, healthy baby girl. And my dad's like, what? I thought the doctors were lying that you were having a girl. You really had a girl? Like he... <laughs> so much wanted a boy. Yeah. Again. Again. Yeah. Can you um, just not be happy for right. uh, the gifts that were given? Yeah. Yeah. We provided my parents with their first grandkids. And my brother didn't have his first child until two years ago, grandson. So they finally got the grandson that they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so this incident, which is what I talked about in my black sheep reel happened right before Christmas. So my brother was in town with his wife and their son who's about was 18 months. Um, Actually, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So Mm -hmm. two years ago at Chinese New Year, um, my daughter was 
about five years old. My older daughter was five years old at the time. And my mom decided to give her younger sister a dress. And my daughter's older daughter was like, why don't I have a dress? My mom was like, sorry, I only have a dress for your sister. So my, it was end of the night. It was nine o'clock at night. We were trying to get out of there. It was late. They're tired, off routine. My older daughter, full on meltdown, crying. Like, I want a dress. I mean, th that's normal. It's natural for, you know, my sister got a dress. Why can't you give me a dress? Like, why are you? Mm -hmm. Because my, my mom actually favored, I don't know. I have no idea who she favored or what, but my older daughter was really upset. So I got on the floor with her. And this was something I learned when I became a parent. I never, my parents never taught me how to regulate my emotions. And so mm -hmm. I, I was, wasn't allowed to hold, express any emotions. If I cried, I. I right. I Suck it up. Suck it up. Or you're going to get a beating. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned how to, you know, withhold my feelings mm -hmm. for fear of, you know, angering my parents and so when I became a parent and my dad would have a big meltdown it would trigger something I'm like what's going on why why I had feelings it was feelings of combination of rage mm -hmm. sadness helplessness mm -hmm. and I realized I was sitting there on the floor with my daughter while she was crying having this meltdown and like this is me when I was a child not mm -hmm. able to express those feelings but my daughter's interested right yep so I, I finally realized and I sat down with her I said hey Gabby it's okay to cry. Like, right. You know, my dad's who's six feet tall standing. We are on the floor and he's standing up circling us like vultures and saying, what's going on? What's wrong with her? What's going on with her? I'm like, she's upset. I'm trying to help her. I got it. I got it. He kept saying, what's going on? What's going on? And I kept saying, Gabby, it's okay to cry. And finally he's like, no, she's not okay. To, it's not okay for her to cry. It's mm -hmm. not. And I stood up to him for the first time in my life to, to defend my daughter Mm -hmm. He said, no, she's my daughter. And I'm saying it's okay for her to cry. And he tried to intimidate me. He said, no, she can't cry. And I said, yes, she can. We went back and forth. And he tried to show like aggressiveness to try to get me to back down. And I said, no. And it could have gotten worse. And I started yelling. And, and finally, my husband stepped in between the two of us and said, we're done. We're leaving. We're, you know, my daughter's full on crying even more because she's scared now by her grandfather, who's just, right. you know, I'm in tears. We get in the car and I'm like full on tears. My daughter had no idea what was going on and she held it all in. It took her two weeks to process it because she's a highly sensitive child mm -hmm. to the point where she remembered what she was wearing that day, where in the house that it happened, told her teacher at school and it came up in a parent teacher conference. This, something happened and she's telling me this. I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so from that point on, we decide we're going to, cut off our visits and it's only going to be during holidays we used to go like every week then we cut it back to two times a month to then once a month and we're like we're done right and mom would try to like get her to say hey, your grandfather he's like that you know he still loves you but my grand her my dad wouldn't get on the facetime with her he just stopped talking to her he gave her the silent treatment mm -hmm. because she wasn't behaving the way he right doing what he wanted yeah mm-hmm but my daughter's very empathic. She could sense it. She picked up mm -hmm. on it. So anytime we did go over there, she would not sit at the dinner table with him. She would wait until he was done eating and he stepped away from the table. Then she would come and eat dinner. Mm -hmm. She was definitely terrifying. So then mm -hmm. the following year, Chinese New Year, my brother was in town and my daughter was on the couch sleeping. And my father walked over to her saying, what's going on? Like talking to her in Chinese, like, she doesn't understand Chinese and just saying, what's going on with her? And my husband picked up on it. He's like, 
leave her alone. Haven't you done enough? Like, you know, mm-hmm. and he denied it. And my husband's like, you know, you're lying. You yelled at her. You need to apologize to her. She's your do- granddaughter. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm not lying. Then he got, they got into it. And then my brother had no idea what was going on. Cause my mom obviously didn't say anything. It was mm-hmm. gaslighting all of us on it. Right. He stepped in and it's like, I don't know what you guys are, what's going on, but you, you know, we need to end this. So then that was last year. And then right before Christmas this past year, my brother was there and then his wife and son, everything was fine. My, and my daughter who has been taking karate since finally sat at the table and just like, but didn't say anything. My dad was there. She just kind of like her, her focus was much better because she learned to just tune it out. Mm-hmm. Everything was fine until the end of the night. And my brother decided to start a fight with my husband over some, I don't know what it was. He, it was, he said it was building up the entire night. I didn't see it, but basically, you know, my husband was jokingly making some comments like, well, when your parent now and like you know this is when the, what's going to happen when your child does this or this based on our it's based on his experience he's just sharing experience because they're right. expecting a second child and he's like well this is going to happen now because you know he's going to have a sibling right my brother took it very personally because it meant that he was shaming him and how he's parenting and then he decided to just start a fight i don't know it just a bunch of other things he wouldn't listen to anything we had to say and finally i was calm the entire time. I said, okay, we're leaving now. And then all blew up. And I finally like word, I vomited out everything that happened. I said, did you know what's going on? What actually happened? And I said all these things. And finally my husband told my mom and said, okay, we're done. Please say your goodbyes. This is the last time you're going to see us Mm -hmm. because I need to protect my wife, her health, because she has high blood pressure. Because anytime you text her, her blood pressure goes up. Mm-hmm. and I need her uh, her my kids to have a mom right and it's that you know it is that that trauma cycle that gets so deeply ingrained in us because why aren't you good enough why aren't yeah. you like your brother yeah I always got why aren't you like your brother and sister you know like uh, you should do things like them because they're smarter than you are you should you know, behave this way. Look at how smart they are. Look at how good they do this. Look how good they are at sports. Let's, you know, and it's like constantly like putting you down to the point where you feel so defeated and so just like beat up and worthless. And like, what am I? Cause you know, and, and add to that, like if your family was like mine, where they were not super affectionate, you know, and my mom and dad hate each other. And so my all growing up in our childhood, my mom would flip my dad off behind his back and, you know, stuff. And so add that, you know, to the, you're never good enough. Why aren't you ever good enough? Suck it. Why are you crying? Suck it up. Like you're not important. Like nothing you say is important. And what happens in the human body is we we store all of those negative emotions yeah. at a cellular level and so that gets ingrained in our in our muscle memory and so you know something may come up like a commercial or whatever and you may just start absolutely bawling yeah and it's literally an alpo commercial and you have no idea why you're crying 
And it's because those emotions are surfacing for, for whatever, whatever moment that was that triggered that to, to resurface. And so it's important for those things to be like addressed and kudos for you guys for, uh, kudos to your husband too, for realizing that that needed to be done to cut out that, that toxicity so that you can continue to grow and to blossom. Because and you bring up a good point because when you're constantly told and that, that very key period is from birth to the age six or six mm -hmm. or seven, where mm -hmm. they, the child takes in all of everything in their environment, any emotional aspects, and mm -hmm. that's where they learn. And that's why, you know, what's going on right now with the trans agenda and then pushing you know, kids right. to transition or talk about gender identity. Kids don't have the capacity to take on that when they're trying to learn how to walk, learn how mm -hmm. to use the potty or learn how right. to regulate their emotions because their parents have to teach them that. My parents mm -hmm. didn't teach me that. Right. I have very little memories of my child. I have like only sections of it. And I feel like when I was a child, because I was, my parents would hit me or use me mm -hmm. verbally. I left my body. I basically right. just was safe. I, left it. And so I only have my subconscious mind probably shut it down to protect mm -hmm. me. Right. And so now I'm not allowing my daughters to be subjected to that. They need to be seen. They mm -hmm. need to be heard. They need to know that they're loved, that they're, you know, worthy. I was mm -hmm. not, and when a parent says, what's wrong with you? Or, or why did you have to do that? It brings on motion emotions of shame, mm -hmm. um, unworthiness, and right. when a parent yells and said, a child will actually stop in their tracks and it be, it's like freeze, flight, fawn. There's like this, mm -hmm. and yelling at your child because a behavior that is, you deem unacceptable, mm -hmm. they may stop that behavior at the time, but only because they're scared. Right. It's going to happen again. And it, if anything, it's going to be even worse because they're screaming out for your attention, asking that behavior is happening because they want you to listen to them and that they don't know how to, they don't know how to express their emotions. The they behavior, don't know how to go, hey, could we talk? Right. No. <laughs> I'm feeling this kind of way. That's not the way it comes out of kids. No, it's not. I mean, when, they, when a child has a meltdown, a temper tantrum, or they whine, that's their communication. And parents don't understand it. They, mm. They think that that's bad behavior. That's mm -hmm. developmentally normal. You know, adults do the same thing. Right. <laughs> yes. How many, how many people do we know that have temper tantrums oh. or, or they call it triggered now, but it's a temp, temper tantrum. It's, a, it's an adult um, temper tantrum. If you, if they don't get their way or if there's something that they don't like or whatever, and it's because guaranteed they have had some kind of traumatic thing in their childhood as well. Right. That never allowed them to, to get out that trauma, to process those emotions. So they carry that, like I said, at a cellular level into adulthood. And they act out like children because they've never been able to process those emotions. Right. I mean, what you're seeing right now in this country all these liberals, I have to say, having these meltdowns. Mm -hmm. Right. Because their parents 
didn't hold boundaries, safe mm-hmm. and firm boundaries, allowing them to express their emotions, but then also saying, hey, you're this doing this. This behavior is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, because. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Instead, you know, they'll give in to them, like they're whining about something. So they get them to shut up, hand them an iPad or give them something to distract them. But they're, it's not helpful because they're essentially distracting them from feeling those emotions. So instead they stuff them in, they're distracted by this bright, shiny thing. Mm -hmm. And it it becomes a cycle that gets repeated over and over again. And if we don't stop it, it's actually going to get much worse. Our future generations are going to, it's just going to be a complete mess. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So Miss Suzanne, I'm so, so, so happy that you joined me um, for this conversation today. And again, I want to tell you how thankful I am for people like you in this world that can use a bad situation and turn it into something good and something that will in turn help other people uh, progress healthy um, and happy through this you know, uh, birth transition and postpartum transition and, you know, learning how to take care of your kids better and, and things like that. So I think you're phenomenal. I love you to pieces. You're, you're absolutely amazing. Your husband's amazing. Tell him I like him too. And I've never (laughs) even met him yet. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for both of you. So where can people find you at if they are interested? I think the best way is through my Instagram account right now. Mm-hmm. It's like create or finish my website. So it is movement.wellness.mama. Fantastic. Um, and people, I'm assuming you're going to post your website on your page when, when you get that done. Yeah. Yes. All right. So, um, and anybody that's in your area, which you're in Indiana now, woohoo, um, Wait, they, you're in Indiana? <laughs> well, I was born in Indiana. Oh, okay. I'm not in Indiana anymore. Okay. <laughs> Although I've spent a lot of time there lately. <laughs> um, but yeah, so people, can they get a hold of you for personal training tips or? Yeah, actually else? I'm doing, um, virtual personal training right now. So anybody that's interested, I can do like a 30 minute discovery call to see if we would work well together. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I, after that discovery call, we do like an initial session where we, I analyze their movements and have them fill out a, a questionnaire prior to our session. And I basically see what's going on. And then based on that, I create a, a customized program for them that they can access via an app. And so we can always do like follow-up Zoom calls just to kind of do a check-in. But so, most people that I work with just like having a program designed for them specific to specifically to them on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic thing. So people make sure that you hit her up on her Instagram page again, uh, movement.wellness.mama M O or M A M A. Make sure we do that. Right. Um, so anyway, people make sure you go and subscribe to her page. Like, comment, you know, whatever she puts out good content. And oh, as always, my dear, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really great conversation. I mean, it touched, it's all, 
it's all related, but it know. is all related. Absolutely. That's why I was so tickled. I was like, Oh my God. She said, yes. Woo. Can I have her on my show? I was even telling my husband all about it this morning. So yeah, I was excited about that. Oh, can I, so, add, one more, can I add one more plug? Yeah, too? absolutely. Um, for those that are patriots or conservative and wish to stop funding woke companies and agendas, mm -hmm. I work with the same company that I buy from. <laughs> 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 mm -hmm. um, I, so I work with a, a Patriot owned wellness company. So we have over 500 products that are safer, greener, um, and they support law enforcement, military veterans, mm -hmm. pro-life, pro-conservative families. So if you're tired of funding any of those other companies that are pushing, you know, trans ideology and abortion things like that this one does not hit the link in her yes bio, in my bio. on yes. her page <laughs> <laughs> all right for me and for the lovely suzanne thank you for listening today hope it helps somebody and we'll see you next time have a good one